Well, welcome. So this is our next to the last uh, prophecy night uh, for, uh, at least for this season. We're going to uh, continue. Uh, let me see here if we're getting, getting our live streamers on. Uh, we're going to continue uh, prophecy night, but just not every week, at least for the uh month the fall season so watch the newsletters make sure you sign up for a newsletter i'll do some periodic stuff uh special for the prophecy night uh group um but uh, with our travel schedule we leave tomorrow for example to go down to dallas for the uh, uh tom hughes deal uh it just made sense not to be on again off again and missing two weeks and then coming back so bear with us on that but we've got two more we got one tonight and one next week and can't wait to uh, to get to it to tonight with all that uh, we're going to be uh, be talking about. So, uh, as usual, let me start with um, a couple of funny cartoons. Now, this one is a little bit well, not really. It's not really that heady. I think it, I thought it was pretty funny right away. But you know, it's it's a it's one that my daughter sent me from I don't know if that's Facebook or Twitter or one of those social media things, but. This person said, welcome back to invisibility class. It's pretty disappointing to see so many of you here. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this one was uh, pretty funny. If, you're, if you grew up in a conservative Christian Bible teaching home like I did, where you can only date people in the youth group and so forth, this was kind of funny. This guy goes, I like you a lot, but, well, but what? Well, I saw you looking for Proverbs in the New Testament, so I just can't. Sorry. <laughs> And then a late addition here for my running theme of cat jokes. Someone sent me this. This was pretty funny. Uh, the throne in heaven, uh, were you a good dog? And, of course, the dog dutifully says, oh, yes, I, I sit and I begged and I was, I was, I can't even read it, sorry. I was spoiled, yeah. And then the, he says, were you a good cat? And the cat says, you're sitting in my chair. So, <laughs> typical, typical cats, right? All right, so some, uh, some announcements real quick. Uh, be in prayer for us as we head down to Dallas uh, this weekend for the Until He Comes Prophecy Conference. And uh, we leave tomorrow. It's a two, we're t making it a two-day drive down there. So uh, you can still get live stream tickets for that. And I encourage you to do that. I would if I wasn't going to be there. I get to listen to them in person. Uh, but uh, it's 15 bucks from, from uh, uh, Hope for Our Times. And you get either to listen to them live or you have 30 days to listen to them at your leisure. So uh, myself, Andy Woods, Alex Newman, Olivier Melnick, Tom Hughes, of course, and uh, others. Uh, so check that out. If you click the banner on our website um, at notbyworks.org, uh, it'll take you right to their website. Uh, the Last Saturday, we did our final installment of the limited five-part series on preparedness, and we talked about how to prepare for martial law. I encourage you to check that out uh, if you have not already. Uh, Monday, yesterday, we did Episode 7 of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. And if you want to hear me lie... Listen to that, because I lied at the beginning and said, oh, this one won't be as long as the last one. 90 minutes later, I was wrapping up. So it turned out to be another long one, but it was really good. A lot of good questions, and really uh, enjoy, enjoy those. Hope you do, too. Uh, then we've got uh, the third installment of Lucas Doremus's Jesus Enigmatic Parables of the Kingdom, and we kind of wrapped up that series. I'll have him back on to talk about some other things in the future. Uh, the most recent World Events Update was last Wednesday. Of course, we'll post a new one tomorrow. Uh, but we talked about uh, 
just uh, the, the, the Lahaina, Maui fires and spent a good deal of time on that. And uh, Randy had done some really good due diligence and some research on that. Of course, a lot's happened since then, so I'm sure we'll get an update uh, on that tomorrow. And then ready, drum roll, please. We're finally ready to start uh, promoting coming soon the new book, Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. Most of it has been edited. We're putting a few finishing touches on. Should have it out uh, available in hand uh, for the folks at Plum Creek and anyone else by mid to late September. So we'll keep you posted on that. Okay, with that, uh, again, don't forget... Uh, September through December, no regular Tuesday night prophecy night. We will do some isolated ones. We'll let you know when that happens. Um, but uh, you will have plenty of material uh, from all the, the conferences that we're going to be doing uh, and, of course, our regular Sunday messages and things like that uh, during this, uh, this window. Uh, so this is our next to the last uh, session. Last week we really hammered out the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And tonight and next week, we're going to talk some more about the rapture. But tonight, I want to zero in on the doctrine of imminency. But by way of review, we said, what is the rapture? Well, the rapture refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. So if you look at an end times chart or diagram here, the rapture is what puts an end to the church age on the left there in yellow. And that starts the clock ticking on God's end times plan. And that's really important. We're going to touch on that extensively tonight, this, this concept of what constitutes the end times. Um, and it all centers around Daniel's 70th week. Uh, and then we looked at several key passages about the rapture. Obviously, the, uh, the flagship passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, but we also looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thess 2, Titus 2.13, First uh, Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9, which we're going to touch on again tonight, and then John uh, 14. So the key passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That phrase, caught up, in Greek is where we get the word rapture. It's the Greek word harpazo, and it means to rescue from threatening danger. Uh, it's used 13 times in the New Testament. In the context here, it's exactly what it's talking about. The Lord's going to come back to rescue the church from what? What is he going to rescue us from? That's going to be important when we talk about imminency. He's going to rescue us not from trouble or hardship or difficulty or persecution. We're already experiencing that, and we were promised we would experience that. He's going to rescue us from the great day of the Lord's wrath, as he said in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So, you know, that short letter, 1 Thessalonians, is packed with end times theology, particularly about the rapture. Uh, and, you know, he talks at the beginning in the first chapter, of course, it wasn't chapters when he wrote it, but what we call the first chapter, about being delivered from the wrath to come. So, I don't think the original audience had any question when they get to chapter 4 and it talks about being caught up, being snatched out of harm's way. They, would, they wouldn't have wondered about that the way 2,000 years later so many people do. Uh, in the New American Standard Version, instead of delivers us from the wrath to come, it actually translates it rescues us. 
And it uh, brings to mind Galatians 1.4. I don't think I put that on the screen last week, but that's where Paul, in the very first letter that he writes, makes an allusion to the rapture because he says, the Lord rescues us from this present evil age. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to rescue us before it becomes an evil age. It already is an evil age, but he's going to rescue us out of this evil age before it gets to uh, the, the day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year period. Later on in chapter 5, he reiterates, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, or deliverance is the idea there, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the rapture uh, puts an end to this last days period. Remember, the last days are the church age. Uh, it's the final age before the kingdom, the fulfillment of God's plan of the ages. Uh, there's a transitional time that is the completion of Daniel's 70th week. Um, but that, that transitional time constitutes the wrath of God. And we're going to be rescued before that wrath of God is poured out. Christ comes back and inaugurates the kingdom. So it all makes perfect sense when you understand it in a plain literal sense. The book of Revelation is key for understanding the day of the Lord's wrath. Chapters 6 to 18 uh, are all about the wrath of God. Um, we've got a, an interview coming Friday with Nathan Jones, part three of his uh, teaching on the mighty angels of Revelation. He's taken us through the entire book of Revelation and identified 72 angels. It's amazing. I didn't believe it when I first thought about it, but as we've gone through it, it's, yep, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. There's every, almost every chapter is talking about angels. That'll post on Friday, but we just recorded it, and you know, I thought it was interesting. He made a very uh, insightful comment that chapters 6 to 18 of Revelation are really the reason most people, most pastors and teachers don't study Revelation. You know, the first three chapters, that's pretty clear. First five chapters, really, it's all beautiful praising and worshiping God and singing around the throne. And you get to chapter 19, Christ comes back, all things are made new, he wipes away all the tears. That's pretty easy to preach. But the first, but the, the tribulation period, those chapters 6 to 18, that makes people nervous. It shouldn't, but it does. You know, we're talking about locusts and frogs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But again, if you understand... Uh, you know, the Bible in its a dispensational sense, uh, in, its, in its literal grammatical historical sense, uh, it's not something that should, uh, um, you know, cause us anxiety at all. It makes perfect sense. Um, so, again, it, the tribulation begins in chapter 6 with them saying the great day of his wrath has come. So, if we go back to the chart, the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. Uh, the second coming happens at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back to inaugurate uh, the kingdom. The rapture happens prior to the start of that seven-year uh, tribulation. And we looked at several uh, contrasts. We won't go through them again uh, between the rapture and the second coming. Um, but uh, they're, they're clearly, each passage is, is different. Uh, so with that, tonight we want to shift into the doctrine of imminency. Now, I bet everybody, how many of you have heard of that doctrine? But if I asked you to define it, you'd probably be like, oh, I'm not really sure exactly what that means, right? So it's one of those terms that a lot of people who believe in the rapture know, but we, we are confused. I, I dealt with this uh, in yesterday's uh, Q&A podcast because someone had asked a question in which they invoked the term imminency, but they were misdefining it. Uh, and I pointed that out. I said, actually, 
the way you're defining imminency isn't what it really means, and I tried to clarify it a little bit. So uh, it's a term that's familiar. It's a hallmark of pre-tribulational theology. It's clearly taught in Scripture, but I find that it's confusing to a lot of people. In fact, a lot of people don't even know how to spell it. Uh, you'll see people refer to it as eminence. That's not what we're talking about. That means inherent presence. You know, they're always there, kind of like the NSA, right? I just wrote a chapter on that in my new book. Uh, and then some people will say, no, it's eminence. Well, they're misspelling it. That's not it either. That's high rank or regard, like some VIP official that you call his eminence. But what we're talking about is imminence. Imminence means could happen at any moment. Could happen at any moment. So what is the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture. It is the doctrine that the rapture could happen at any moment. Not that it's going to happen soon, but, and that's the way this person was using it, oh, I just really think the rapture is imminent, and I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Well, it is imminent whether it happens in your lifetime or not, because imminent just means it could happen at any moment. In other words, there's not any prophecy or prophetic event that comes before the rapture. The rapture is the next great prophetic event on God's calendar. Uh, so I want to take some time uh, to step by step give you the, I think, overwhelming proof of the doctrine of imminency. Why do we believe the rapture uh, could happen at any moment? Uh, and the reason this is important is because those who deny the rapture they, they absolutely have to deny imminency because in denying the rapture, what they're saying is there's only one return of Christ, that the second coming, those, those you know, two passages we looked at, uh, the second coming and the rapture, in their view, are the same event. So, uh, you, know, they, they, you know, they've got this sort of U-turn concept for the church. We go up to meet the Lord, then we come right back down, and, you know, rather than going to meet him where he is, as he told us in John 14. So if, and obviously, if you think they're the same event, it's not imminent. In fact, Jesus, one of the longest sermons he gave was all about, here's what's going to happen right before the second coming. And he gives us two whole chapters in Matthew uh, and, a, you know, a, a smaller version in Luke 21 and Mark 13, but all about here's what to watch for. So there are all kinds of signs that happen before the second coming. So if it's the same event, well then, you know, it, it's not imminent. And conversely, if it is imminent, as we believe the Bible teaches, then it can't be referring to the same event. So the first thing I want to do is take a look at some key scripture passages that imply imminency. Uh, notice I say imply, you'll see why in a moment, uh, but to me, it, it, these passages do not make sense if the rapture is not imminent. So the first one we're going to look at here is uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where at the end of the letter, Paul says, O Lord, come, which is Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. It's a combination of three words. Mar, Lord, Ana, our, and Tha, come. Come, Lord, or our Lord, come, is the idea. Now, that only makes sense if an any moment or imminent coming is understood. If you knew that the rapture was not going to happen until 
after the Antichrist had been unveiled and after he had signed the covenant guaranteeing Israel's peace, if you knew that the rapture was not going to happen until after the seal judgments, until after the, bowl, the trumpet judgments, until after the uh, abomination of desolation, until after the two witnesses appeared, if you knew that the, the rapture was not going to happen until after the, the bold judgments, after the battle of Armageddon, uh, why would you say, come Lord Jesus? He's told you when he's coming. You, you only say Maranatha if you're trying to hasten the Lord's return. If you're saying, look, we know you're coming at any time. May it be today. That's the idea. Uh, in the same letter, uh, Paul uses this phrase, eagerly awaiting. In fact, it's interesting 1 Corinthians is bookended by the doctrine of imminency. Chapter 1, verse 7, in his opening remarks, he says, You're eagerly waiting the revelation, the appearance or unveiling of Jesus Christ. And then as we said at the end, he says, So come Lord Jesus, right? Well, that word, uh, eagerly awaiting, uh, is a, a one word in Greek. It's used seven times in the New Testament, all seven times. It's in the context of of uh, the rapture. It's the word apekdekamai. It means to expect anxiously, to look forward to something eagerly with hope, to be in a continual state of expectancy. So again, why would you be in a continual state of expectancy for something you know is not going to happen for at least seven years? You wouldn't. The word would make no sense. In Philippians, another time Paul uses it, uh, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, we're expecting it anxiously. We're looking forward to it eagerly with hope. First um, Thessalonians 1.10, again, we, it's not the word apekdekamai, but it's the same idea. We are waiting for his Son, who, whom he raised from that again, who's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. Or 1 John 2.28, another passage that really would not make sense unless you're expecting in any moment return of Christ. He says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, if you know when he's coming at a prescribed time in a prescribed sequence of events, this command is really meaningless because, uh, you, you know, you can make sure that you're abiding in him when he comes back. But the context here is you should be always abiding because you don't know when he's going to come back and you don't want to be caught off guard. Uh, Paul told Timothy to keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Uh, same idea. It's a, it's a motivation to constantly be living for the Lord. Or what about this? One of the key passages on the rapture. I've got it in the... Uh, inscription at the beginning of my eschatology book what lies ahead looking for the blessed hope well why would you be looking for something you know is not going to be happening for seven years you know i think i've used the analogy before if you've got you know friends coming or say when our kids were little and grandma and grandpa were coming over and they're supposed to come on friday you know the kids aren't going to sit by the front window watching on monday i mean they might because they're pretty excited about them coming but that would, you know, you'd say to them, you know, guys, they're not coming for another four or five days. You can wait. You can go back to your room and play or go back to what you were doing. We'll, we'll let you know when it's the day, right? You don't look for something that you know is not going to happen. You, what you do look for is something you expect to happen any moment. In Hebrews, 
another occurrence of apec decamai. Uh, you know, if Paul wrote Hebrews, which I believe he did, then every occurrence of apec decamai is, in a, is, is written by Paul. If he didn't write Hebrews, this is the one exception. Six of the other occurrences are in the context of, uh, you, know, you know, are Paul's writings, but they're all referring to the rapture. Um, to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time. Again, eagerly waiting, expectantly uh, waiting. Uh, what about Philippians chapter 4? Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, at hand implies imminency. It's literally near. Uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor uh, that comes from being at an arm's length, right? It's, it's close is the idea. doesn't mean soon in the context. It, it soon, it's, it's near in the sense of it could happen at any moment, right? So that's near. If it wasn't imminent, you would not say it's near. Uh, you're not, you'd, I mean, unless you consider seven years near, <laughs> which I don't know why anybody would consider that. Um, uh, James says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So again, the idea is, you know, he could be, you know, knocking. You could hear that knock at any moment, at any time, right? And then I love this in Revelation, three different times in the final chapter, we read the words, I am coming quickly. Quickly, there's the Greek word taxis, not texas. That's a different Greek word, taxis, um, which means occurring rapidly, rapidly or speedily, not soon, right, but quickly, right? Um, so it's used 15 times in the New Testament. In some context, the word, you know, it's a time word. So depending on the context, it can mean it's going to happen soon. But it can also mean when it happens, it's going to happen quickly. And that's exactly the way the Bible describes the rapture. The rapture is going to happen, do you remember what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 15? In the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen quickly, right? One minute we'll be, you know, going through life. The next minute we'll be with the Lord in the air. And, uh, and what a day that will be. So all of those passages to me really... If they don't, you know, if, if at least imply it, they, they demand it. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like they demand it. You can't, they make no sense if we are expecting the Lord's return to happen at a prescribed moment in time, which, by the way, is why a lot of people who don't believe in the rapture also basically don't believe in a tribulation. They, they end up spiritualizing all of the end times prophetic texts and they don't have any end times prophecy. It's just sometime in the future God's coming back, and when he does, the saved go to heaven, the lost go to hell, and it's all over. Um, now, I want to take a, a moment to talk about a bunch of passages that a lot of people, I think, mistakenly point to to prove uh, imminence, and that is the so-called watchfulness passages where we're told to be watchful. And the reason you don't want to necessarily point to those as proving imminency is because the same language is used to refer to the second coming. And so context, context, context has to determine a meaning. Sometimes, uh, the, you know, people are told during the tribulation to be watchful, not because it could happen at any moment, but because when it does happen, it might catch you off guard. You might forget, you know, um, 
it's kind of like we set an alarm, right? So we know when that alarm is going to go off. We're the ones that set it. And if you're like me, I'll do this frequently for something that, you know, oh, I got to remember my next podcast is at three. I've done this a lot lately. And I'm working and I'm focused. And I know that if I get engrossed in what I'm writing, I may forget. So I want to set that alarm to remind me. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm being watchful because that podcast could start at any moment. I know precisely when it's going to start. But I want to be, I want to be alerted. I want to be watching and, and, and being prepared, right? And so that's what we see happening in 1 Thess 5.2, for example. We talked about this one last week when he says, You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Uh, and uh, he goes on to talk about in chapter 6 how we in this present age don't need to fear that day of the Lord, talking about the Lord's uh, tribulation, uh, because we're going to be raptured before that, so we need to, to live accordingly. Uh, but for some people, uh, that's going to catch them off guard. Uh, that's not the I rapture passage. Uh, or Jesus teaching in the Olivet Discourse. Again, speaking exclusively to the future uh, tribulation generation, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not, not know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. Now, a lot of people say, well, well they know. It's seven years after the treaty. I dealt with this question yesterday, too. Um, well, first of all, that presupposes that everyone on earth is going to, be, to know when that covenant was signed, when the literal signature of the Antichrist graced the page of whatever that covenant is. Of course, by then it's probably an AI, and he just thinks about it, and it appears on the screen or something. But the point is, no one's going to universally know precisely when the clock started ticking on that seven-year period, number one. Number two... Uh, even if they do, they don't know the exact hour or day, you know, per se. Uh, and so what he's saying here is, unlike the days of Noah when people ignored the warnings and the flood came and swept them all away, you need to, if you're alive during the tribulation, you need to be paying attention. Because at some point, there's going to be a great earthquake. Christ is going to come back with a thunderous army and with a word... He's going to defeat uh, the beast and the false prophet. So just recognize that not every call for watchfulness is a demand for imminency, but the phrase eagerly awaiting is. That phrase means I'm expectantly, you think it's going to happen at any moment. So the next thing I want to mention is that pre-tribulationism by nature demands imminency. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, Imminency is not an exegetical word. I'm not pointing you to a passage that says, Thus saith the Lord, the doctrine that the rapture is imminent, right? We are building the case for the doctrine of imminency like we do for other doctrines using theological synthesis, comparing Scripture with Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity, for example. Um, we, 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 we take what the Bible says as a whole and we can draw some conclusions from it. And that's what we're doing with imminency. Um, so, imminency uh, passages, like the ones we looked at, do not in and of themselves prove that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. We know the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation for other reasons. And given that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, hence pre-tribulationism, then it must be imminent. And that's what I want to prove with this next uh, series of slides. So, all end times Bible prophecies that have a time factor associated with them or a sequence associated with them relate 
to Daniel's 70th week or later. Um, so, for example, sometimes we people try to place prophecies before the tribulation, like Ezekiel 38 and 39. It doesn't tell us when that's going to happen. So people say, oh, well, it might happen before the tribulation. Well, I don't know why you would think that. And again, all respect to people who do. When every time the Bible explicitly tells us when something's going to happen in sequence, it's after the start of the tribulation. So you're kind of charting new territory when you start to take ambiguous prophecies and put them before the tribulation. That's why I believe all prophecies uh, happen after the start you know, of the tribulation. So Daniel's 70th week is the key. Daniel's 70th week is kind of the, as I said, the clock starts ticking on God's end times plan. He had given a 490-year plan to the people of Israel. He told them when it was going to start. He told them when the 483rd year of that 490-year plan would end. And it, it started and ended like clockwork right when God said it would. Uh, in the case of the you know, ending of the, that time period, it ended with the triumphal entry of Christ in 33 A.D. And then Daniel's prophecy tells us some things are going to happen after that, such as the crucifixion. He doesn't call it a crucifixion, but he says the Messiah is going to be cut off or killed. And then he also talks about how the temple is going to be destroyed. Both of those things have already happened. And then he says sometime after that, we'll get back to the 490 years, and the final seven-year period will commence. When does it commence? With the signing of a treaty. Does he tell us when? No. We don't know when. All we know is that it's going to happen after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD, and it could have happened at any moment after that. We don't have any uh, other information about it. It's just that that event is what starts the clock ticking. And then everything else we read about in, in Scripture related to the end times falls either within that seven-year period or after it, like the millennium or the great white throne or those types of things. Um, now, so all end times prophecies relate to the time of Daniel's 70th week or later. The seal judgments that we read about in Revelation chapter 6 constitute the beginning of that seven-year period. Well, how do we know this? Well, several ways, but most notably, if you compare the Jesus teaching about this seven-year period with the sealed judgments in Revelation 6, there's remarkable correspondence. So what does Jesus start out by saying? And remember, the Olivet Discourse is answering the question that the disciples asked Jesus what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will the kingdom start? We've been waiting for it. We've been looking for it. We want the kingdom. When are you going to take the throne, uh, defeat Rome, and take over the world in perfect peace and righteousness and justice? Which is, by the way, exactly what he's going to do. It'll be a revival of the Roman Empire that was there in the first century. And, he's gonna, and the Antichrist is going to lead it. Mystery Babylon. In Revelation 18, the Babylonian system, the beast system that will emanate from a literal Babylon, the headquarters in, in uh, Iraq, but also have sort of a, uh, you know, outposts in other places. Uh, the, I think Rome will be the religious center of the Babylonian system, the, the Antichrist system. Uh, and then I think 
And that's probably where the, the false prophet's uh, office will be, because he's going to be put not just in charge of the economy, but also getting everybody to worship uh, you know, the beast, the Antichrist. And then you'll have a financial center somewhere. I have uh, uh, speculated that if the rapture happens while America still exists, which is, the Lord better hurry up, or that might not be the case. Uh, but if it did, I believe that, that probably New York City, uh, which currently is the seat of Luciferian economic control, will most likely be in play during the, the tribulation. But the point is, this seven-year period is when the Antichrist is going to reign, and Jesus is explaining what is going to happen during that seven-year period. Revelation gives us several chapters about it, uh, blow by blow. Uh, Jesus gives us two chapters, really one that explains the signs, and then the rest of the Olivet Discourse is practical application. Um, kind of the so what question at the end of Jesus' sermon, if you will. So how does Jesus start? the answer to the question. He says, well, first thing you're going to see is false Christs will rise up and deceive many. Well, what do we see when the tribulation starts? The Antichrist is unveiled, that rider on the white horse, Revelation 6, verse 2, that goes out to conquer. It's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to be an imposter, the fake Christ. He's called the Antichrist by John in John's letters. In the book of Revelation, the name for him is the Beast. Uh, and then the false prophet is also called the beast. One's the beast from the sea, one's the beast from the earth. But uh, this false Christ takes center stage. It's this uh, unholy trinity uh, as Satan in this final climactic time leading up to his demise uh, he thinks he's going to win the world. So he's doing everything to mimic the, the, the triune God. You know, Satan... Uh, is the equivalent to God. The Antichrist is kind of the earthly representative to, to point people to Satan, to get them to worship God. And the false prophet is like the Holy Spirit who's getting everybody to worship the Antichrist and leading people to the Antichrist. The same way the Holy Spirit today is drawing people to Christ and convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, the false prophet's going to convict the world uh, that sin's okay, and they need to worship the, the Antichrist, and so forth. So then what do you see next? Jesus talks about wars. The very next thing he mentions. Well, what's the next thing we see in the tribulation? People killing one another. War breaking out. Then Jesus talks about famine. Well, the third horseman of the apocalypse, the third seal judgment, is the scarcity of food. Then Jesus talks about death. Well, the fourth seal judgment is the death of one quarter of the world's population. Uh, then you see the fifth seal judgment is the cry of the martyrs that have come out of the tribulation, begging and crying for revenge. Remember, the, the seal judgments, unlike the bold judgments at the very end, are kind of spread out. You know, the, the, um, I'm just speculating here, but the first one happens at the very beginning, as soon as the Antichrist signs the peace treaty, that's the rider on the white horse, the, the false Christ. But it might be a while before we see the next one and the next one. They're going to kind of fill up the first three and a half years. And then I believe the rest of the judgments happen in the second half of the tribulation with the bold judgments kind of concentrated at the very end uh, in preparation for Armageddon. Uh, so, um, you know, we see Jesus talking about martyrdom and and. And, and by the time you get to the fifth seal, there's already quite a few martyrs that have uh, 
been killed and murdered during the tribulation because they didn't take the mark. And so that's Jesus warns about that. And then Jesus talks about cosmic signs, lightning from the east to the west and the sign of the uh, Son of Man uh, in the clouds and so forth. Well, you know, the final seal judgment or the sixth one before he opens the seventh, which is seven more judgments, uh, is cosmic disturbances. So the seal judgments are the wrath of God. They're the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath. That's why in Revelation chapter 6, you, you see them crying out, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Indeed it has. We talked about that last week. So the tribulation is the wrath of God. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 21, that Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Um, going back to the Old Testament prophets, we looked at several of these last week. This seven-year period is called the day of wrath and sometimes the great day of the Lord's wrath. So if you look at you know, our chart, uh, that seven-year period is known by a variety of terms. Uh, you see three of them there on the screen, but the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, a week is the Hebrew word Shabuah. It means a seven-year period. Uh, so Daniel's 70th seven-year period, uh, constituting the 490 years. As we just said, it's known by the day of the Lord's wrath. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. It's known as uh, the overflowing scourge. Sometimes it's called the great tribulation uh, and, and so on. So um, the, the seal judgments are the prophetic wrath of God. And then what do we know plainly from Paul's teaching? The church is exempt from the day of the Lord's wrath. So if that seven-year tribulation is the wrath of God, and the church is promised we will be delivered from that wrath, we were exempt from it, uh, God has not appointed us to wrath, we won't be here when it happens, then that means the rapture must occur pre-tribulational. So you can, you can prove pre-tribulationism exegetically. And then having proven pre-tribulationism, then by default it has to be imminent because none of the prophecies in Scripture say anything about the timing of the rapture. We have no signs that the Lord says, when you see this and this and this, you know the rapture is near. Not a single one. It is a signless event. We have tons of signs, as we just went through some of them, about when the second coming is going to happen, not the rapture. So you got those two pieces of data. On the one hand, the rapture must happen before the tribulation. On the other hand, all of the clear teachings in Scripture about prophecy relate to that tribulation period or later. So... Uh, if the rapture happens before that, and the third piece of evidence is there's no signs, there's no nothing the Bible tells us to look for, uh, that means the rapture is the next great prophetic event, as we said, and it's a signless uh, event. So that being the case, what are guys like me and all these other prophecy speakers that I'm going to be with the, this weekend and at different conferences throughout the, the fall, and that we've been at for years, what are we doing out there talking about we think the rapture is near? Well, we're just saying 
there, even though we can't cite chapter and verse, we're looking at the stage setting events. I'm going to give in my message uh, Friday, no, Saturday in Dallas, uh, you know, why I believe, to my top 10 reasons why I believe we're getting closer to the rapture. Uh, just a quick you know, overview of some of the things I've been talking about in my Spirit of the Antichrist uh, books. But it's one thing to see the stage being set for prophetic events. It's another thing to say, oh, here's the date, and we can get out our calculators and try to figure it out. Um, the stage setting relates to all of God's end times prophecy, like the tribulation and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the one world system and the mark of the beast and those types of things. And if the stage is being set for those things, which it is quite clearly, and we know from Scripture that the rapture happens before those things, then we know the rapture's got to be getting closer. It's just basic math, right? So, uh, you know, it's like John Walvoord used to say, uh, you know, when you start to see all the Christmas decorations, and by the way, someone told me they're already out. I forget where. Uh, Costco or Costco? Costco. Wow. Um, so when you start to see Christmas decorations, I guess in August, you go, oh, wow, I guess it's going to be Christmas before long. But then it suddenly hits you. Wait a minute. If Christmas is right around the corner, that means Thanksgiving's even closer, right? Because last time I checked, Thanksgiving comes before uh, Christmas, right? So uh, same way, when we see signs indicating, you know, the tribulation, the Antichrist, the one world system, all those things are falling into place, then it ought to make us go, ah, the rapture is even closer. So we're not, when we talk about these things, we're not setting dates, or shouldn't be. Some of people are. That's, that's too bad. It gives the rest of us a bad name. Uh, but, uh, but we're not setting dates. We're just saying, look, the stage is clearly being set. The props are being put in place. We just can't see it being much longer before uh, the rapture happens. So the, rapture, the, the imminency of the rapture is that it could happen at any moment. Now, I want to take a moment and mention a fourth thing, and that is because, you know, this is one of the most embarrassing uh, criticisms of pre-tribulationism and imminency that's, that are out there. Uh, when people cite it now, I immediately, uh, they've lost all credibility with me. I mean, I don't care how many degrees they have after their name or how popular they are, how many followers they have. If you, if you say that the rapture is a new teaching and imminency is a new teaching that only came up by Darby in the 19th century, you are embarrassing yourself, and it shows a lack of knowledge about both Scripture and history, right? Uh, so I want to just take a moment to kind of settle this issue. Now, I know I had Tommy Ison recently. He's like the world expert in this. In fact, a lot of this data, is, he was the first one to discover it um, in, in writings. Uh, but just so you can have this at your fingertips, remember these videos will be posted, so you can go back and screenshot this if you want. Let me go walk you through how throughout church history, people have always expected the imminent return of the Lord for the church as distinct from his return to the earth to establish his kingdom. So let's first go back to the Didache. The Didache is a Greek word that means the doctrine or teaching. And it's a very a fascinating uh, book. Uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of controversial because especially liberal scholars tend to try to discount it. Uh, but essentially it dates from the, from the 70 AD to about 100 AD. So concurrent with a lot of the later books of the Bible, like uh, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and so forth. Uh, so it's 1st century. Uh, 
uh, it was after the time of Christ, but still many of the disciples were still there. John, for example, was still living. Um, but it's claimed to be the work of, of the 12 apostles, that as the church began, it's not inspired, it's not part of the canon, right? it's not part of the Bible, but it's a key historical document. And, and you know, the, the Didache was spread around and passed around, especially in less populated areas as the church spread westward. The, the apostles couldn't be everywhere, and this was still, God was still revealing his written word. We didn't have the complete Bible, so the apostles spoke with a th revelatory authority. And, you know, they couldn't get online and do live streams and have Zoom meetings to answer questions. So they created this uh, book and spread it around. You see several writings and lists uh, in the later church fathers, especially beginning in the 300s, that refer back to this document. They call it the teaching or the teachings of the apostles, uh, which most people believe was a reference to the Didache. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Didache, I don't know why I've got 40 to 60 there. It was most likely 70. Um, but in any event, uh, it's first century. It clearly references the rapture. Just not should come as no surprise because the apostles teach the rapture in the New Testament. Then you've got Clement of Rome, a very early church father that talks about the imminency of the rapture. Ignatius, uh, getting into the second century, you've got the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermas and Papias. All of these church uh, fathers speak about a pre-tribulational a concept of escaping the tribulation that was to come. Um, Shepherd of Hermas speaks of imminency. Uh, and then you've got Justin Martyr. Uh, same thing. Now, you know, late second century. Uh, Arrhenius, late second century. All we have in writing extant uh, references in their own writings to a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church, imminently, and once uh, for Israel, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cyprian. Get this, here's Pseudo-Ephraim, 373 A.D. So this is a good quote to have at your fingertips for all those idiots, and, and I mean that in love, <laughs> uh, that say the rapture didn't come into invention until, you know, 1850-something, right? Uh, they're just embarrassing themselves. So Pseudo-Ephraim, 373 A.D., said this, all the saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come, and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. We ought to understand thoroughly, therefore, my brothers, what is imminent or overhanging. Obviously, that's a translation of the Latin, but that's what he said, right? Um, so, you know, well-known early church father. Now let's move into the medieval period. Now we have less evidence, although there are people searching and looking and we're finding through archaeological finds new documents all the time. We have no doubt there will be more. But uh, Codex Amiatinus, that's a, a codex is a binding of a book like this. We would call it a, a book. But as opposed to a scroll, it had leaves that were bound together and it resembled a book. Um, well, you know, uh, it references the rapture. 1200s, Brother Dolcino, clear references to the rapture. Uh, why don't we see more? I mean, you'd think the 
more recent we get in time, the more proliferation we would see because, for one thing, the older documents tend to disintegrate and are not as, you know, we don't have as many of them. Well, you have to remember that from Augustine in the fourth century all the way, you know, through the Renaissance, that whole time was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, if people wrote anything different from what the Catholic Church was teaching, they could be burned at the stake. Uh, and, and their writings were burned as well, by the way. Uh, a lot of historical writings were lost during that time. Anything that contradicted the official church view, which was that the kingdom is now, the pope is the king, was destroyed. Um, so Augustine popularized the notion of a spiritualized kingdom, and that sort of dominated, uh, you know, theology for a thousand years. Um, and so it didn't entirely obliterate pre-tribulational thought from the church, as we can see. There were at least a couple, um, but it made it you know, harder to, to find. And then you get into the Reformation era, well before Darby, I might add. And you've got uh, Peter Giroux in his book, Approaching Deliverance of the Church, came out in 1687, and he taught that Christ would come in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the Battle of Armageddon. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's right out of the Bible. So that's the thing. People, the reason we saw a proliferation of teaching about dispensational pre-tribulationism in the late 19th century was because, you know, by then we had more Bibles, more books, more we had the printing press, and so people were starting to read, and we had the Bible in their own language. People were starting to read it and say, oh, the Bible says there's going to be a rapture. I guess that means there's going to be a rapture instead of, you know, believing what their priest had said. Um, he spoke, uh, Jero spoke of a secret rapture prior uh, to the Lord's coming in glory and judgment at Armageddon. Philip Doddridge, 1738, and his commentary on the New Testament, as well as John Gill's commentary on the New Testament, both used the term rapture, again, before Darby, and speak of it as imminent. Um, they believed that his coming would precede Christ's descent to the earth in the time of judgment at the Battle of Armageddon. They taught the purpose of the rapture was to preserve believers from that time of judgment. Again, you know, God has not appointed us to suffer wrath. Uh, James McKnight and Scott Thomas Scott both taught that the righteous will be carried to heaven where they will be secure until the time of judgment is over. Again, uh, the doctrine uh, of the rapture clearly taught throughout church history. Uh, so I'm going to stop here because it's a good stopping point. Next week we'll get into many more reasons that we know the church will not go through the tribulation. But tonight what we've said is that essentially, um, let me get back to my main uh, screen here, uh, imminency is the belief that the rapture could happen at any moment. Not that it's going to happen soon, not that it's going to happen in our lifetime, but that it could because it can happen at any moment, it might happen soon. It might not happen for 100 years. Uh, so we need to be careful when we say, oh, I believe it's imminent. We, 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 if we really think it's going to happen soon, we should say, I believe it's impending. I believe it's, it's, it's around, you know, I, th I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Be specific, because imminency is not up for debate. It is imminent, whether it happens in our lifetime or not. It could have happened in my grandfather's lifetime, it could have happened during the Middle Ages, it could have happened uh, while John was still alive. 
It didn't, but it could have, right? Uh, so we said there are key scripture passages that make no sense if the doctrine of eminency weren't true. Uh, Pre-tribulationism demands eminency because the Bible has is clearly going to happen before the tribulation. Uh, the rapture is clearly going to happen before the tribulation, and there are no Bible prophecy passages that have anything to do with okay, this happens before the rapture, or watch this. It means the rapture is near. It's a signless event. And then I put, you know, last, because obviously our primary arguments have to be biblical and theological, but it is worth noting that it's not like we're out on a, a limb. You know, we, we, are, we are in keeping with traditional historical uh, church uh, uh, teaching on the matter. All right. Any questions then about anything we've talked about tonight or anything else that's on your, on your mind as we shift into the Q&A? Yes. Wait for the mic oh, here. Yeah, what is the purpose of the thousand-year um, reign? I mean, why not rapture the church, judge the non-believers, and be done? Like, what's the point of that thousand years? Yeah. So, great question. Um, I think it's the purpose of the millennium uh, is to demonstrate. Uh, God's grace during a time when even when there's perfect peace and justice and righteousness, no inequities, no accidental death, no unfairness, Satan's in prison. Uh, I had a good discussion in the interview that's airing Friday with Nathan about what happens to demons during that time. The Bible doesn't tell us whether demons are going to be imprisoned with Satan or not. I don't think they will, but even still, whatever role they play, it's way minimized. Whereas today, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. In the millennium, the whole world will be under the control of Christ sitting on the throne. And the purpose of the millennium is to demonstrate that even in a time like that, the heart of man, as Jeremiah said, is so desperately wicked that some people will reject the gospel. See, right now, people might you know, and are prone to blame God. You know, it's not fair. You know, if you only knew what happened to me, it's just, you know, accidental death. My husband died of cancer. My child died young. This isn't fair. I've been mistreated. I've been falsely accused, that kind of stuff. And so I write about this in my book, Top 10 Reasons Why Some People Go to Hell. They, they use those as excuses. Now, they're not legitimate excuses mm -hmm. because that's not, none of that's God's fault. The, the world as it exists today is not the world God created. We're the ones that messed it up. Mm -hmm. but, but, but still, people use those excuses. In the millennium, all that goes away. If somebody rejects Christ, I mean, I can't imagine why they would, but they will because we have a whole multitude of people by the end of the thousand years that are siding with Satan and have never believed the gospel. So. Well, aren't there enough non-believers today? I mean, would, why, why would God... Uh, you know, allow another 1,000 years for um, non-believers to still remain unbelieving? Well, because uh, today there's, again, things aren't perfect. They're not peaceful. They're not just. They're not righteous. Okay. In the millennium, it will be. Okay. So today, prior to Christ taking the throne, they can shake their fist at God and, and say, oh, it's not fair. In the millennium, that's all gone. Okay. So he wants to he, he wants to have a and by the way this is just theological speculation the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us other than it's a fulfillment of prophecy and we know that it's going to happen there's going to be a lot going on during that time but we we also know that it's going to you know, during that time there will be a large contingent of people who are born during the millennium because at the start of it it's only believers 
but over time, as those people are born, some of them will nevertheless still reject Christ. I don't okay. know why. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. Somebody else. Does imminency make sense to you? Just remember, it could happen at any moment. That's all that means, right? Doesn't mean soon, but it could mean soon, right? It could be soon. Yeah. What happens to the um, 144,000 witnesses? During the millennium, I mean, sorry, during the tribulation. What happens to them? Yeah, when do they go to heaven? So they they go into the millennium when Christ comes back. They never die. So the 144,000 are set aside and, and set apart at the beginning of the seven years uh, to be missionaries, and there's a seal put on them so that they cannot be killed. Uh, how they come to faith, we, we don't know the specifics, but we know they get saved like every other human being since Adam by faith. And so that these 144,000 witnesses are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we won't get into why there's, you know, some tribes are left out. But um, anyway, they then become the missionaries, and they're still alive at the end of the tribulation. And when Christ says, you know, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, they're the ones that they're part of the group that gets to go in. Somebody else? Yes. Um, on one of your charts, um, you had the word theodicy. Does that mean ruled by God, or what does it mean? Yeah, so that's in my revelation chart. A theodicy is a justification for what's about to happen. So in this case, it's a justification for the wrath of God that's about to be poured out. Uh, so chapters, chapter 1 introduces Christ, which is the subject of the book, the Revelation. It's not Revelations plural, though a lot of people call it that. Uh, it's Revelation singular because it's the Revelation of Christ. He's coming back, tells the rest of the story. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to seven historical churches from Jesus to these pastors or representatives. Angels is what it says, but they're representatives. Uh, and then chapters 4 and 5 set the stage, and they say, Who, what gives God the right to open these seals of judgment? Well, the lamb was slain. That's what gives him the right. And Jesus, you know, by his blood shed for the world, you know, has the right to then pour out his wrath on those who didn't accept his, his gift. So that's what a theodicy is. It's a justification for the wrath of God. Yes. Paul. I mean, Jim, sorry. Yeah. Not Paul. Jim. I'm asking for the nervous Nellie over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, she would like to know, why is Satan allowed to come back? Yeah. Well, Satan, Jesus tells us, that the everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so uh, he he's, can't destroy him until the very end when he destroys everything and casts all unbelievers from the great white throne, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself into the everlasting, the lake of fire at that time. And so he's just imprisoned during this thousand-year period we were just talking about 
then he has one quick final battle where he, you know, when it's all over, the old earth is destroyed completely, the old Jerusalem, everything, and is recreated in sinless perfection. And in that way, the Bible has then come full circle back to where it began, which is mankind, I will be your God, you shall be my people, perfect intimacy, uh, walking and talking with God, no sin, n nothing. So, good question. Okay. Uh, just using your chart here. So during the tribulation, there's the 144,000 who will be um, uh, talking about the gospel message to uh, people who were not raptured, who were part of the church. There's also the two no, witnesses. No, people who are what now? People who were not, to people who were not raptured. Right. Um, people left behind. Left behind. Right. And then there's the two witnesses who um, are preaching the gospel. They're, they're murdered, but then three days later they're, they're raised, mm -hmm. right? And the world would see them. Which really makes the Antichrist mad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And wasn't there also another entity... Yeah, chapter angels fifteen. Or something like that. Uh, What's that? Was it angels? Yeah, or some an other angel entity that is also preaching the gospel yeah. worldwide. So, uh, uh, Revelation chapter fifteen is a what's called a prolepsis that happens right. That's picturing what's going to happen at the second coming in Armageddon, and then chapter sixteen gets into the bowls and right up to Armageddon. So, fifteen, you're at the very eleventh hour. The seven years is almost up, and God sends an angel to share the gospel with anybody who up to that point has not heard it yet. Because remember, Jesus promised in the Olivet Discourse that prior to his return to establish the kingdom, every human being on earth will have heard the gospel. He said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then the end will come. So that's uh, our task right now as the church but we're not guaranteed that we'll fulfill it. There are still people today, believe it or not, who have not heard the gospel. In fact, that number is actually increasing, believe it or not, because people are being born into postmodern, post-truth eras, and they're never even hearing about it. Um, but by the time of the second coming, everybody will know. And so what, what appears to be the case is that by the time you get towards the end of the seven years, anybody that the 144,000 didn't reach or the two witnesses, or anybody who didn't hear the gospel through some other way, a gospel track, or some video left behind by not by works or something, or who, the, who hadn't heard about angel. it, the angel's gonna gonna get the rest of them. Okay, here we go. Okay, so piggybacking off of that question, what is your opinion uh, about people through the ages who? truly did not get to hear the gospel um are they i, I mean <laughs> yeah. is nature supposed to be because it says you know um you are without excuse absolutely yeah so yeah i don't i don't have to have an opinion thankfully because the bible tells us so it's not open for debate uh not hearing the gospel does not excuse you if it did then the worst thing we could do is the evangelistic enterprise because the minute we share the gospel with someone they're now accountable right so the best thing, if we want to make sure people go to heaven, if they automatically went to heaven if they'd never heard the gospel, it would be to just keep it quiet. No, don't tell anybody because now they got to believe. 
And if you tell them, they might not believe. So let's just not tell them. Then they're automatically in. No, no. The Bible is very clear in Romans 1 that everybody knows there's a God. He has revealed himself through nature, through providence, through conscience. And if you respond to that revelation, general revelation, God will make sure you hear special revelation, namely the gospel. So not hearing the gospel does not, you know, give you a, a pass to heaven. Here we go, right, right behind you there. On the topic of stage setting, is, is there a list of all of the prophecies that would, would be pointing to the event of the second coming? And can you check off every one that's happened and, and then see the ones that haven't happened yet and say, okay, I'm going to watch for those? Well, when you say a list of prophecies, you mean a list of because uh, no prophecies have happened yet. The rapture is the next one. That's what I'm saying. There's a distinction between a fulfilled prophecy and a stage setting to, to indicate those prophecies might be getting fulfilled soon. The next prophecy on the list, if I started with a list of all the unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture, the first one is the rapture. Nothing before that. So if you're asking, are there a list of uh, events and things that have happened that clearly seem to relate and be prophetically significant to something that is going to be fulfilled later. Uh, I'm sure there are those lists out there, uh, but off the top of my head, obviously the, 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 the reestablishment of Israel as a nation is huge, but that's not the fulfillment of prophecy, even though some people think it is. I don't. Uh, I don't think there are any prophecies that will be fulfilled before the rapture. It's stage setting. That's different. Uh, the curtain won't rise until the rapture, and then the prophecies are going to be fulfilled right and left every day. But until then, uh, it's just stage setting. I think what's happening over in, in Russia and Ukraine is stage setting for the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, you've got all the players, Turkey, Syria, Iran, Russia, uh, Libya, you know, uh, all of them uh, So I involved. Uh, so I think that's setting the stage. Um, talk of rebuilding the temple. Um, the one world system, the global ID system. Just today, Bill Gates tweeted out that he's solved the problem of a global ID. He came up with a new app that is going to, you know, everybody can use it and have one digital ID for the whole world, you know. Forget what it's called. It's an acronym, but I actually added it to a chapter that was already complete and edited in my book because it was, you know, too important to leave out. Um, so I always worry when I do that because... I have to read it like a thousand times just to make sure that paragraph I put in is correct because the editor's not going to look at it again. So, um, But, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of things happening that indicate these prophecies could be fulfilled, but there are no prophecies being fulfilled today. The end times starts, as you look at our chart here, with uh, the rapture, and then everything after that you know, is when Bible prophecy is fulfilled. Anybody else? I know you teach that the wedding feast is going to happen at the beginning of the millennial, millennium here on the earth. So why do you so many prophecy teachers teach that it's going to be in heaven during the seven years? I don't know of any that do. They talk about the marriage being in heaven. That is true. The marriage is in heaven. Because when you get to Revelation 19, that's, you know, it's, it's happened. We're, we're in heaven when that happens. Um, but the marriage feast, the banquet, 
that happens on earth, and it's the first thing that kind of kicks off the, the kingdom. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there probably are some, um, but I, I don't know why they would think that. Um, Isn't there some kind of verse that talks about that Jesus says at the Last Supper, he said, I will not drink this with you until, I don't know when he said, but I think that's what they, they're taking that as meaning and that, that will be after we're raptured in heaven. That's when he's going to drink the wine with the church. At, well, that's heaven, at the banqueting table. So remember, Jesus said in Matthew 8 that in the kingdom, so now that's clear we're talking about the earthly kingdom, people will come from the east and the west and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, so that, bank, that banqueting supper happens on, on earth. But the actual marriage, you know, happens in heaven of the church. It's a special blessing of the church. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay. Thanks for coming tonight, by the way. Thank you. Um, um, what's going to happen to children um, disappearing? Um, when the rapture comes, they're going to do it before or after. I don't understand the part. So children uh, who, Babies. yeah, anybody that is not intellectually capable of understanding and believing the gospel, so they they don't they don't understand sin and their need for a savior. They don't they can't literally their their mind isn't developed enough to understand the gospel. They'll be raptured. Sure. Unborn children raptured. Uh, and any child today, aborted babies, any child today that's in Cape, that dies before they reached uh, an intellectual level where they can understand that they're in heaven today. Yeah, good. All right, we'll do one more. Anybody want to save the best for last? No pressure. Okay, here we go. All right, she speaks. Does that mean that, like, like my niece and nephew, they're intellectually capable to understand the gospel, and they're five and six. Mm -hmm. So that means there's children. They need to believe the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, they need to believe that, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They need to be told that Jesus loves them. He died for, on the cross for their sins, and if they trust in him, they can have eternal life. And Jesus, you know, uh, said, let the little children come to me. He understands that they can understand it. It's not complicated. It really isn't. The devil's done a great job of confusing and complicating the gospel over the last 2,000 years with a little help from some heretical teachers um, and Calvinists. Um, but uh, Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Uh, but uh, it's not complicated. You are a sinner. What five-year-old doesn't know he's a sinner? Uh, you need someone to that sin has a penalty, and that penalty is not good. It's pain, it's separation, it's not good. But guess what? Jesus Christ loves you so much that he took your penalty in your place. And he died, paid that penalty, and then he rose again from the, the grave, proving that he was God, the greatest sign of all. And, and then having purchased eternal life with his resurrection he gives it to you if you want it but you got to accept it 
So who are you trusting in? Do you believe Jesus died and rose again for your sins? My children can understand that. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you guys. Um, one more to go, and we'll talk some more about the rapture and kind of uh, wrap it up. But uh, be in prayer for us uh, as we head out this week. And uh, don't forget, if you're interested, check out the, the link on our website to uh, Hope for Our Times, and uh, you can kind of join in on all the speakers that are going to happen Friday and Saturday. All right, God bless you, everyone.